Well, please do open your Bibles to 2 Timothy and find chapter 1. It's about the middle of the New Testament. Uh, you'll find 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And as Nathan prayed, I have also prayed the Lord would expose us. Uh, in this passage, you're going to see a negative and a positive, and you are one of those. There are, there's not a third option. One of the many weaknesses of my preaching, many people here can attest to that, is that I'm a broken record. If you listen to me preach just a few times, you'll quickly acquire an ability to be able to predict with great accuracy what I'm about to say. And that's because I don't have a very diverse repertoire of words. Now, it is a very commendable evidence of long-suffering in your lives to be bludgeoned by a preacher who just keeps saying the same things over and over the same way, and you just keep showing up. That's an evidence of your long-suffering grace. But with that very strange introduction to today's passage, I'm going to give you an opportunity to exercise your sentence-finishing prediction power right now. Because I think the word that you might put at the end of the sentence that I'm about to say is a very faithful one-word summary of today's passage. Are you ready? As Jordan won't stop saying in his preaching, Christianity is both taught and caught. I knew you'd get it right. Even if you've never heard my preaching, it rhymes good enough, right? Taught and caught. Well, to shorten that phrase, today's passage is about the caught aspect of Christianity. The sermon title is Gospel Loyalty Exposed. You're either doing that, loyal to the gospel, or you are not. And for those who were here last week, you may remember that our sermon title from the verses right before today's was about gospel loyalty explained. So last week explained and this week exposed. Last week we heard six explanations of what being loyal, faithful to the gospel looks like. This week we see an example of what being loyal to the gospel looks like. Last week was taught. One, two, three, four, five, six. This week is caught exposed. It gives us both, as I mentioned, a negative and a positive example. Negative verse 15, positive verse 16 through 18. I double dog dare you to listen to these verses with all of your heart. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. I'm reading from the New American Standard here, the word of the Lord. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Let's pray together again. 
Father, you are the incomparable God. The best thought we've ever had about you is not even close to the totality of who you are. You are bigger, you are better. You are more grand, you are more immense than our little finite mind can even begin to comprehend. And as big as you are, so also have you loved us. Thank you for your incomprehensible love. And we're asking that you would set your great heart upon us right now. As we look to Christ together through the lens of your word and by your grace, we're asking you to do something to us. That you would mess with us, that you would change us, that you would transform us. Would you make of us men and women whose loyalty to the gospel is abundantly obvious in our selfless service to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dig into the words of the Word of God in this passage, I just want to take a step back and see it again as one whole. Verses 15 to 18, there's two parts to it. You can skim it. Verse 15 and then verses 16 to 18, negative and positive. In verse 15, you have at least four negative examples. Two people are mentioned, and then there's a plural others, all. There's a bunch of people probably in the all, so there's some negative examples in verse 15. Then verses 16 to 18, there is a positive example. The first, verse 15, were not loyal to the gospel. The second, verses 16 to 18, was loyal to Christ, to his people. Do you see that? Verse 15, all who are in Asia, including Phagellus and Hermogenes, they were not loyal. Whereas verse 16 to 18, Onesiphorus is a shining expose of gospel loyalty. One commentary said of this passage, Paul was involved with real people who chose either to follow Christ or reject him. You are one of those, negative or positive. There's no other option. The commentary goes on to say this underscores the choice facing every Christian. There is no neutral position in this life. We are, quote, either for Christ or against him. Matthew 12, verse 30, that came from the lips of Jesus. So let's look at these two points, one at a time. First the negative, then the positive. Verse 15 is the negative. The point is gospel disloyalty exposed. Verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, I don't know if that's how you pronounce their names, but if you say it with confidence, everybody thinks you're right. This is the only verse in the whole Bible that mentions those guys. We don't know a lot about them. But if you'll slow your soul down and stare at the words and ask God to help you see what's there, not making up stuff, there's actually a pretty good bit of information here. But before we go to those two guys, let's just reckon with the bigger picture. This is a very sad verse. In the few words of verse 15, I don't know if you can see it, but there is a huge swath of planet Earth. 
And there is a very long backstory about some people. Just in that one verse. So as we drill into the disloyalty to the gospel that's exposed in verse 15, let's just look at those two things one at a time. The place and the people. Do you see it? The place is Asia. The people are all and Phagellus and Hermogenes. First, the place. Asia. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, Asia in this verse is not what you might be thinking in your mind if you're considering a modern day map. This verse is not referring to the modern Far East. This is not Malaysia. This is not Indonesia, China, Japan, or the Philippines. Rather, Asia in this verse is the same place that the book of Revelation was written to. Revelation 1.4 is addressed, quote, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he tells us who they are. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So if you're envisioning a huge chunk of planet Earth that is referenced in verse 15 accurately, you are looking at all of the land exposed above the sea between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. All of that. And Paul says, with great grief, they're notorious. You know very well. Timothy was already aware. Paul wasn't telling him new information. He was reminding him of something that Timothy already knew. Timothy's heart had broken over this, and I guarantee you Paul's heart had broken. All who are in Asia, you are very well aware, have turned away from me. It doesn't mean that every single Christian in that whole swath of land turned away from Jesus. We know that because, as I just mentioned, the book of Revelation, which was written later, was written to churches in that area. It probably means that the people who at one time were specifically helping Paul, supporting his gospel ministry, coming alongside him in the actual practical labors, coming into the sphere of what God was doing in gospel advance in the first century world, helping the apostle, they, quote, turned away from him. Put simply, when the going got tough, they quit. Now, we actually know a lot from the Bible about the gospel going to Asia, that part of New Testament world. Everything was good. When Paul first showed up in Asia, the word of God was blowing cities up. Lots of people were all in. When lots of people were getting saved and the Holy Spirit, Acts 19, 1 through 7, was invading the lives of new Christians. There was a big entourage of people who loved to ride with the Apostle Paul when people were swiping his handkerchief out of his back pocket and laying it on sick and demon-possessed people in their little huts and villages. And Acts 19.12 says every single one of them were being healed and delivered. There were tons of people who didn't turn away from Paul 
when Acts 19 verse 17, the name of the Lord was being greatly magnified in Asia, when pagans took 316 years, 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 316 years worth of salary that they had spent on occult books and burned them in a big fire, Acts 19, 18, lots of people were on Team Paul. It was easy for Paul to recruit helpers when Acts 19.20 happened. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing in Asia. But Paul decided to stay a little longer. Acts 19.22, to see if the roots of Christianity were going deep into the souls of people or if they were just surface Christians, name only. And when things started to get a little tougher... Acts 19, 24 to 29 wants you to know that Demetrius and his buddies caused Paul a, quote, great deal of pain. Faithful guys like Gaius and Aristarchus got, quote, dragged into the theater in a mob for two hours. You think my preaching is long? For two hours. A mob broke out like what happened in Manhattan yesterday. And they drugged these two Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus, into the middle of the theater. And they were shouting in their face, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the pagan false Greek god. Then all of a sudden, things weren't so hunky-dory in Asia anymore. You see, Acts 19.10, it all started so well. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a direct quote from Acts 19.10. But eventually the newness wore off and false converts faded away. Then instead of an abundance of gospel helpers, Paul found himself in a severe recession of people who were truly loyal to the gospel in Asia. So when Paul writes in verse 16, you know very well, Timothy, all who are in Asia turned away from me. He's talking about people who once were so helpful in laboring alongside him for eternal things, but now they opted for something else. The principle in this little phrase in verse 16 is something that if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, I want you to stop for just a minute. If you're thinking about becoming one of those Jesus followers, before you do, Jesus said, count the cost. Salvation is absolutely free, and it will cost you everything. If you don't want to calculate that cost, not Jordan, I would argue the Bible definitely does not recommend you becoming a Christian. Rain or shine, easy or hard, blessing or challenge, the Christian's motto is the same. All of life, all for Christ. All in Asia turned away from me. That's the place, but look at the people. The people who were disloyal, he said all, and then he names two guys, Vagellus and Hermogenes. Instead of remaining in general, in his summation of those who are in Asia who turned away, Paul specifies two men by name. Now this is the only time, as I mentioned, these two men 
names are given in the entire Bible. We do not know much about them, but we do know they did not continue to be what they had once appeared to be. This little phrase specifying these two men's names, it's not a whole lot, is it? A few little words, you can read it in about half a second. But it's more than enough for us to know that at some point, both of them, both of them, not in like the cheesy church, not the trendy church where just like, you know, pretend to be a Christian for a little while and everybody will say you are. I'm talking about with the Apostle Paul. Both of these people appeared to be something that they later proved that they were not. Somewhere along the way, they were included in Acts 19.10. People who heard the word of the Lord. More than that, we can deduce from these, wor deduce from these words that they were also helpers of Paul. And we know Acts chapter 20, Paul, quote, did not count his life in any regard as dear to himself except that he might finish the ministry that was entrusted to him. Those guys helped Paul do that. Gospel heralding, church establishing, kingdom of darkness dismantling. We do not know how long they helped Paul. We do not know how much they helped Paul, but what we do know is that they no longer render such help. Now let's get real. It's 2023. Our country's absolutely disintegrating. Life is hard. Jordan, can you not just pump the brake a little bit? I mean, I know a lot of Christians, Jordan, who seem to have it made. To me, it looks like they get heaven here and hereafter. A life of ease in this world, a life of ease in the world to come, that's the Christianity I'm looking for. Now, to be sure, there are a lot of professing Christians. Some of them may be genuine converts. who plan out their entire life from start to finish. I'm talking about the job, the spouse, the house, the kids, the cars, the fun, the leisure, the vacations, the entertainment, and they seem to be able to do it all, even adding a church that's got enough flexibility and programming for their liking, it conveniently fits around all of that other important stuff, and they just get to add Jesus to come along for the ride, and for them, life is good, heaven now, heaven later. Sign me up for that. But the Bible is not calling anybody to a martyr complex. You do not earn two points with Jesus by making your life harder. And at the same time, whether you're rich or poor, old or young, new convert, baby Christian, or a seasoned saint. Faithfully following Jesus will never cost you nothing. So what's your bottom line? That's really the question of verse 16. I'm talking, get out your calculator, 
Scratch a line on your paper. What is your bottom line? How much can Jesus ask of you before you, like the two guys in this verse, bow out? You see, when they started, they looked great. And nobody but God knew there was a line in the sand. Jesus, you can come this far, but you're not coming any further. And if you want me to step across that line and follow you, I'm out. Where's your line? That leads us to our second, final points, the main point. Not gospel disloyalty exposed, but the good news, the positive gospel loyalty exposed. Verse 16 to 18. Look at it again. It's worth rereading a couple million times. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. These verses transition, as I mentioned, from the negative to the positive. One commentary said, in the midst of widespread defection, Vigelis, Hermogenes, others, one man, Onesiphorus, and his family, his household, remain committed to Christ. This is a Joshua moment. This is a, you make your own choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Another commentary said clearly the negative and positive examples were designed to strengthen Timothy's resolve. Why is Paul telling Timothy about these people that he's quote very well aware of? Because Paul's trying to do something to Timothy and I'm trying to do the exact same thing to you and me right now. Strengthen Timothy's resolve to be counted among those who were willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with the apostle and by virtue Jesus. You see just like the only thing we know about Phagellus and Hermogenes are found in the previous verse. Similarly, all we know about Onesiphorus is contained in these verses. I want to attack these verses from the end to the beginning because that's actually the way they unfolded chronologically. To keep them in sequential order, you start at the end and go to the beginning, 18, 17, 16. And there's five things that I want to show about Onesiphorus's example or expose of gospel loyalty that we would do very well to emulate. Now, I've talked to a bunch of kids in the church this week and asked them to help me come up with nicknames for these guys because they're very hard to say and I don't even know if I'm doing it right. So from now on, you can thank one of the kids in the church. We're going to call Onesiphorus Oni. Okay, it's shorter. We can say his name a lot. If I say Oni, that's the guy we're talking about. But before we dig into the five ways that his life is a glowing example that should be emulated by all Christians of gospel faithfulness, I first want you to notice that this section is bracketed by Paul's prayer for the Lord's mercy to be abundant in his life and in his family. But not only in his life and his family, do you see it's also for time and eternity. There's two prayers for the Lord's mercy. The first is 16, the second is 18. The first one is for him and his family. The second one is for time and eternity. Do you see it in verse 16? The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Do you see it in 18? 
the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. The first one, the prayer for mercy for Oni's life and family, it's not just for the man, but also for his household. Some scholars suggest that Paul's phrase indicates that he was still separated from his family because of his ministry endeavors. Apparently, they're in Ephesus. You can get that from verse 18. And he's in Rome. Some say that you would pray for a person like this, Lord, give him mercy and give his loved ones mercy. Because Paul's thinking they're still separated because this guy's still out serving Jesus and they're happy about it. So protect them and provide for them both. Like when Pastor Nathan travels the globe to teach the scriptures and encourage gospel workers, what do we do here at Grace Church? We're mindful to pray for him, but also for April and the kids because they're making a sacrifice for him to go while they remain home without him. Similarly, in verse 16, Paul might be praying like that. Based on the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul in a lot of other passages, there's only a special group of people on planet Earth that get mercy. Paul's not into a cheap gospel. The only people, according to Paul, in a lot of passages that get the mercy of Jesus are people who know the mediatorial salvation of Jesus. So Paul's not just saying, sprinkle a little mercy on his house. He's talking about those people that love you, God. While he's out serving, would you help them and him? Because they all trust Jesus. That's the prayer for him and for his family. But then I said, there's also a prayer for time and eternity. You see it in verse 18, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Well, we've already covered time in verse 16. This, I believe, is eternity. The phrase on that day has the exact same meaning as the phrase in verse 12 that we looked at last week, until that day. It's a reference to the last day, at least your last day. It's the day with which you are on a collision course. So many older pastors I've heard say to me and just in general, read their books, listen to their sermons. Our job is to prepare people for eternity. And the way we do that is we prepare them to suffer until they get there. That's what Paul's doing. It's a reference to this last day when Oni's going to stand before Jesus, you're going to stand before him too, and so will I. Paul's not simply hoping, but he's confidently praying that this man will be a recipient on that day of an avalanche of the mercy of Jesus. Guess who's going to get that avalanche? Those who trust him now are going to get an ocean full, no brim, no bottom, the unknowable love of Jesus, how wide, how broad, how deep, how high, Ephesians 3, unknowable love of Jesus, his mercy. The principle in this repeated prayer, give him mercy, give him mercy, is taught many times in Scripture. And the principle because it's prayed for a man who's giving his whole life for Christ, is this, you cannot outgive God. 
Our service does not earn his mercy. Paul doesn't say, well, he's done a lot for you, Jesus, so why don't you pay him back? Mercy is actually the opposite of that. It's giving you what you don't deserve. It's true that our being merciful to others is one of the great evidence that we have received the saving mercy of Christ. Jesus said that plainly. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But don't get that wrong. Jonathan Edwards said that's the hardest verse in the New Testament. It's not a meritorious earning. It's an evidentiary proof. Those who receive the Lord's mercy continue to shower His mercy upon others. And all the while, the Lord just keeps filling your cup with more and more and more of His mercy. You cannot outgive God. You see, Paul's praying for this man to receive mercy because he's laying his life down for the cause of Christ and his family loves Jesus too. And Paul's saying, give him all mercy. And on that final day, unzip the floor of heaven and just douse them with all the mercy of your great heart. You cannot give God. Jesus said in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which of these people do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, duh. But then he said, so go do that. Go and do the same. Why? Because that's what becoming a Christian does to somebody. It opens your previously blind eyes and you see gobs of opportunities. I'm all for and I do not denigrate this. I'm actually encouraging you to do this. I'm all for praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Do you know what God will do if you start praying like that? Open your eyes. You've never not had an opportunity to share the gospel. So with that in mind, the man and his house getting mercy, for time and eternity getting mercy, I want you to take a look at these five ways that Oni is a glowing example of gospel loyalty. And before I give you the five, let me remind you about this guy. These examples don't come from Jesus, though that would be a very good source. There's plenty of examples in Christ that are wonderful, that ought to be followed. These examples don't come from Paul. Though Paul often does that too, but he doesn't here, although he too definitely should and could be highlighted in many, many wonderful ways as an example for us to follow. But these five exposés of gospel lo loyalty come from just a church member, an ordinary Christian guy. For all we know, he's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. He's just a church member. I love that Paul loves to do this. And by the way, he's writing to a pastor, Timothy, and he's holding up an ordinary Christian as an example for all Christians. Paul loves to do this. He tells the church at Colossae, look at Epaphras. He tells the church at Philippi, look at Epaphroditus. John the Apostle says, Hey guys, look at Gaius, look at Demetrius, 3 John verse 1 and verse 12. Here Paul points to a man whose name most people who have read the Bible from cover to cover many times forgot was in the book. We don't even know how to pronounce his name. And he's listed 
by the Holy Spirit as somebody God knows very well. And 2,000 years later, we're tucked away in a nowhere part of the city. All the people around us don't even know we're here. And we're talking about this guy that God wants us to think about for a few minutes. Because if you're a Christian, I'm not saying might. I'm not saying maybe. If you're a Christian, you will definitely want to be like this guy. We got lots of people in this room right now with Bible names. I counted up this week in our church membership directory over 30 children in this church whose names came straight out of the Bible or good biblical theology like Trinity. I mean, right here in this room, we got Abraham and Elijah, Mary, Caleb, Enoch, Lydia, Noah, Joshua, Silas, Eden, Asher, Jedediah, Samuel, Matthew, Paul, David, Titus, Josiah, Azariah, and Anna, and that's not even all of them. But in all my church life, I don't recall ever meeting a guy named Onesiphorus. Now, I'm not against it. And you might be able to come up with a better nickname than Oni. But even if you don't name your kid Onesiphorus, Oh, how we pray. Oh, how we pray. I'm praying right now. Lord, make us all like this guy. Five ways that Oni shows us what it looks like to be loyal to the gospel. Last week we saw six explanations. This week we get one shining example. First, long-standing track record of gospel loyalty. Do you see it in verse 18? We go from the end to the beginning. Verse 18, at the very end, you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, it's been a long time since Paul was at Ephesus. He's now in prison in Rome. And between the two, he had a lot of stops. But all the way back there, Oni was just doing the same thing. A long-standing track record of gospel loyalty. I think this is true. I've heard it many times repeated by much more godly people than me that are older in Christ than me. But the older I get in Christ, the more I think this is also true. I also think this is true. Young Christians overestimate what you can do in a day and way underestimate what you can do in a lifetime. Like if I ask you to preach next Sunday, young men, I hope you would sweat it out all week long, praying and studying God's word. And I'm sure many of you would do a fantastic job and God would use it. But I got a little secret for you. All of you are going to forget this sermon by this time tomorrow. And we way overestimate what we can do in a moment and way underestimate what we can do in a lifetime. The difference between Phagellus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus in this passage is not if they served Paul. It's not if they helped him. It's not if they tried to advance the gospel in Asia. At one point, all three of them did that. The difference is that Oni is still doing it. All three of them may have served for what they would have considered, and many others, a very long time. But eventually, two of them flamed out. They had a shelf life. They had a bottom line. They had a line in the sand. But only service, like that old Energizer Bunny commercial, <laughs> you older people will know that. You can tell your kids, just keeps on going. You see in verse 18, he used to serve the Lord. 
And in verse 16, he's still doing it. Oh, to be more like this man. It's what Eugene Peterson called real repentance. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Long-standing track record is number one. Number two, not only his long-standing track record of gospel loyalty, but his well-known track record. That's also in verse 18. You know very well. Now Paul's not just talking about a guy, he's talking to Timothy about a guy. Some of us shrink back at the thought of others talking to somebody else about our good works. I love you enough to tell you that's a very unbiblical thing to be afraid of. That's actually false humility. Because according to Jesus, Christians should be known for Christian behavior. I mean, Jesus is the one who said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. But it doesn't terminate on you. They glorify your Father who is in heaven. So now put this sequence together from verse 18. You look at the words of 18 and you tell me if this sequence is there. There is no doubt from verse 18 that when Timothy thought about Onesimus, not Paul, Timothy. Paul knew that Timothy immediately thought about the many ways Onesiphorus had rendered service to Paul. Do you see the sequence? Paul knew that Timothy knew that Onesimus was faithful to Paul, and he knew it very well. What a great reputation to have. Now, to be clear, there's nothing in this passage that would lead us to think that Onesiphorus was serving for vainglory or to be seen by men as the end-all, be-all. Here, these are two people, without Oni even knowing about it, delighting in Christ because of how faithful this, quote, ordinary Christian is. Do people talk about you like that? Do other people know you, even when you don't know that they're talking about you, as somebody that they think, man, you know so much, you know very well, you know in great detail how that sister just serves Jesus. What a great way to be known. Billy Graham famously asked the question, quote, all of you who can hear the sound of my voice, I'm not doing my Billy Graham impersonation, but you try to imagine. All of you who can hear the sound of my voice, if you were arrested today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In poor Oni's case, he wouldn't stand a chance of having a mistrial. No hung jury. This man would be as guilty as the day is long because Timothy knew very well that this man is a servant of the Lord and his people. And the second thing I want to highlight about him, not only his long-standing track record, but his well-known track record of gospel loyalty. Do people know you like that? Number three, labor-intensive track record of gospel loyalty. Not only was his faithfulness long-standing and well-known, it's also labor-intensive. Not easy. Verse 17, when he was in Rome, here it is, he eagerly searched for me and found me. Now, our poor media guys may not be able to follow my gibberish, but I've got a slide I want to show you if we can put it up there. See if this works. Maybe. Yeah, there it is. Okay, it's a black and white map of the first century world. 
I'm going to walk over here so you can see what I'm talking about. There's Rome. There's Ephesus. This is water. To get from here to here, you got to go way up there and down, or you got to ride this boat all the way over there, and there were no gas engines. And here, when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me. Thank you, brother. You can take it down. Now, we're not told exactly why he was in Rome. Paul doesn't tell us why he came. For all we know, it could be a business trip. Could have been a mandatory work conference. Maybe he made a special trip to Rome all the way from Ephesus to find Paul. We don't know why, but we do know that. When he got there, no matter what else he was there for, he had a divine impulse not to leave until he found this man. While the man he's looking for is chained to a wall. I don't know why he went from Ephesus to Rome, but I do know this. It took him 1,277 miles to get there. But it also appears that once he got there, he spent lots of mental and physical energy searching. That's what Paul said, searching diligently trying to find Paul's jail cell. Now put yourself in first century Rome. You do not have a cell phone, there is no internet, and you probably do not want many people there to find out that you're a Christian. Why? Because the guy you're looking for is in jail for what? Being one of those. So you're using shrewdness and ingenuity, and you're listening to the streets talk. And you're going down the alleyways and the byways. You're standing outside the Colosseum, where, by the way, they feed people like you to lions. And you're trying to find your beloved friend. Why? Because you want to be some sort of encouragement to him. And you're not willing to leave until you find him. But the whole time you're searching, all your diligence, all the miles you cover in the city, not to mention the ones you spent to get there, the man you're looking for doesn't have a clue that you're looking for him. He's counting the tiles on the floor again. He doesn't know that you even know that he's there until one day. Oni twisted and turned down this obscure alleyway and he made his way through a doorway down a stairwell through a series of other doors and hallways, underneath a penitentiary, and he popped out in front of the bars that were confining his apostolic friend. I can just imagine in my mind's eye, I don't know if this happened, I'm making this up, so, you know, this is Jordan. Paul, doing a double take, a triple take, a quadruple take, he's wondering if he's having another vision or if this is real. Onesiphorus beckons him to the bars. Paul comes. They reach through one man one way, one man the other way. They're hugging and squeezing through those bars. And eventually Paul just says, how did you find me? And Oni says something like, it's a long story. But when they finally sat down and they shared a conversation through those prison bars, 
something was said or done that months later, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, not Onesiphorus, Paul squeezed down in a little phrase, he searched diligently for me in Rome. That word diligence is, quote, uh, one lexicon pertaining to being earnest in undertaking an activity. Another lexicon, to be quick in doing something with haste, focusing on the importance of what you're doing, being conscientious in discharging your duty or obligation diligently, earnestly, zealously. That's why I'm saying his gospel loyalty is labor intensive. What's your bottom line? I mean, if Jesus asked you to do that, are you out? Not only long-standing, well-known, labor-intensive, but verse 16 talks about multi-layered track record of gospel loyalty. Not just one time, many times. Not just one way, many ways. I don't know if you call yourself a Christian, but I am absolutely asking you to examine yourself by this phrase. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, in the middle, after a prayer for mercy for him and his house, Paul says, for he often refreshed me. That's more than once. Some translations say he very regularly served me. Where Phygelus and Hermogenes might be able to get off the hook of Billy Graham's incriminating question, if you're arrested for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Well, maybe those two boys, yesterday, last year, last decade, they would have been found guilty, but they could easily be declared not guilty today if they're on trial for being a Christian, because all they have to do is say, yeah, I used to do all that stuff, but... I'm verifiably out. In fact, I got lots of alibis. Actually, if you want to prove that I'm no longer one of those devoted to the gospel people, save a lot of time and money for your court system. Just call the Apostle Paul. He'll tell you right now that I quit. But poor Oni, this man is still out working in the field for Christ. He's still putting the gospel net out there trying to get lost humanity to become one of those Jesus-following people. He's busy right here in this verse doing everything he can in this moment to live his whole life loyal to the gospel. And unfortunately for him, one of the witnesses that can be called against him is a guy who's chained to a wall in a dungeon in Rome for the same crime. Things don't look too good for him if he's trying to be known as somebody who's not a faithful Christian. Finally, not only his multi-layered, very often he refreshed me. I just find that amazing, by the way, that little ordinary Onesimus can be encouragement in Christ to the eminent Apostle Paul. But the final way is life on the line, track record of loyalty. Life on the line. I get this from verse 16. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains.
you and I actually have no idea if our love for other people is God's love, agape love, until it cost us something. I mean, everybody loves something, somebody, it may be your own self. But that something often proves to be self or something other than Christ because when there's any expense or an expense that we think is too great, then our so-called love starts to wear thin. I mean, you ask any parent in this room, somebody kidnaps their child, there is no length too great to which they would go to get them back. True love. I mean, God's love, the love that does not define God, but is defined by God. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, that kind of love is self-giving, son-sacrificing. John wrote, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when someone receives that love, God's love, agape love, he or she is now equipped to love others with his love. It's actually his love for them through us. How am I getting that out of he's not ashamed of my chains? I said a moment ago, we do not know. Even if we think we know, we do not know if our love is agape love until it costs us something. Are we willing to pay the price for the good of another? Even when the cost to love somebody like that is so steep, it's so high that we have to give more than we think we have. It costs us more than we think we can spend. You see, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he did the hardest thing. Christ died for us. That's love. That is love, and it costs God, 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 everything. Jesus came from heaven to this earth, and he paid the ultimate sacrifice as the quintessential expression of love. God literally said, that sacrifice of that son is God's so loving the world. And all Christians now can sing for time and for eternity, not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not powers, not things present, not things to come. Nothing seen or unseen. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul writes, he was not ashamed of my chains. Earlier I imagined a hug between Oni and Paul. Now I'm imagining something else. Here's this man working the streets of Rome with shrewdness. How can I find him? Okay, I eliminated the northwest quadrant. He's definitely not there. All right, I got three-fourths of this gigantic city. How am I going to find him? He eliminates the southeast quadrant. He eliminates the other quadrant. He's down to a fourth of the city. That's still a million people. How am I going to find him? And how am I going to do it without outing myself too early so that they throw me in a prison over here and Paul's in a prison over there and he never had any idea that I was coming to encourage him? I can still imagine that Oni may have gotten landed in this jailhouse and Paul never would have found out that he was ever looking for him to try to refresh him in the first place, but make no mistake, 
once he found Paul, there was a conversation. I don't know exactly how it went. I don't know who said what. I don't know what they said when they said it. But I know there was a conversation. And it might have gone something like this. And I'm not saying verbatim, let's say it the Lord. But it might have gone something like this. Oni, you got to be quiet. They're doing a shift change for the guards. They're going to find you. Maybe you got to get out of here. You need to leave quickly. You need to take another way out. Who knows you're here? Who saw you come down the alley? And I can almost hear him saying to Paul, I'm not worried about me. I came here for you. You don't know if you love with God's love until it costs you something. You might use another person for personal gain your entire life and it'd be nothing other than a glorified selfishness and you call it love, you might use the right words, you might spell it the same way, but I'm telling you, you don't know if you love somebody with God's love until it costs you something. And Oni was not ashamed of Paul's chains. Why? Why? You've got to know the answer. If you've ever finished one of my sentences in your life, you've got to know the answer. Because somebody ripped the chains off of Onesimus' heart, freed him from death, snatched him from hell. He's free. You can't kill this man. You might cut his head off, but he will never die. Some scholars suggest that the reason Paul prayed for mercy two times for Onesimus, verse 16, for him and his house, verse 18, on that day, some scholars say it's probably because scholars like good guys. I'm talking, they know how to read the Greek in their sleep. Gordon Fee. They think he's already in heaven. Some of them think he never made it home. Maybe his final judgment already happened. And maybe Paul's thinking about a friend of his who died in his service to Paul. And when he thinks about him, Lord... We don't do posthumous prayers. We don't pray for the dead. We don't baptize for the dead. We don't do any of that nonsense. This life, that's all we got. But that man lived for you. So before you, give him mercy. What's the application? I want to draw your attention, your attention to a very important point that I haven't said one shred about. You might think it's a typo. You might think the Holy Spirit trying to make his book longer. It's a very clunky sentence, but it is not a typo. It's at the beginning of verse 18. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. I don't know how your, yours renders it, but it's something close to that. I read like 10 translations and they all say it pretty close. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord. Isn't that a weird way to talk? That's not a typo. Not only is it not a typo, it's vitally important. This reinforces the truth that Onesimus was receiving mercy from the Lord. Not, not on the ground of his service to the Lord. 
The source for the mercy is clearly the Lord, not Onesimus. And the object of the praise is clearly the Lord, not the man. The Lord give him mercy from the Lord on that day. Most likely a reverence to the Father at the beginning and the Son at the end. Or to put it together, I'm going to Jordanify it. May God the Father, this is Paul's prayer, look only and always upon God the Son for the resources of mercy that Onesimus must have to stand favorably in his presence forever. And may the risen Lord Jesus Christ richly supply from that bloody reservoir of his gospel accomplishments all that the Father requires for Onesiphorus to stand favorably before God forever. In short, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. That's what all the Christians here at Grace Church want for you. I mean, all the Christians here want that for you. So dear friends, won't you just flee to Jesus by faith? Right here, right now, even so, you will receive His love. You will receive His forgiveness. In a word, you'll have His mercy. And if you do, then you too will become a growing model that other Christians can point to. Like Paul to Onesimus to Timothy, of God's great heart of mercy. Just like Paul pointed to Onesiphorus so that Timothy could become more like him, other Christians will be able to point to you and say, This is what it looks like to be loyal to the gospel. What does it look like? A track record of gospel loyalty, all rooted in the gospel of Jesus, is long standing well-known, labor-intensive, multi-layered, even if your life is on the line for it. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would make us loyal to the gospel. Please do not put any of our names in sentences alongside Phagellus and Hermogenes. Please put our name in sentences beside Onesimus. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.